Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. Now, in our 16th season, with over 500 episodes in 17 countries, we are Radio Strong. Now, here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. everybody, this is Sandra Beck and I'm here with best-selling author Paula Mounier and you guys need to go to any bookstore in the world and find her books. They are on the shelves, they're on Amazon, she's got a bunch of them. Some of them are about writing, some of them are mysteries, all of them are terrific and I'm a big fan not only of her her mystery series but I'm also a big fan of her writing books and whenever I sit down to work on something I refer to her books over and over and over again so I'm going to let her introduce the different topics and the titles and then we're going to talk about overcoming writer's block and why people either wrote furiously or not at all during the pandemic and the pandemic plus that it left us Paula, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you. It's always lovely to be here. I'm a literary agent by day and a USA Today bestselling author by night. And I've written three books on writing. The Writer's Guide to Beginnings, which is all about how to open your story. Because honestly, if you're trying to sell your story, if the opening doesn't really rock, nobody reads any further and you don't get anywhere. There's Writing with Quiet Hands, which is really for more refined points of writing. So if you've reached a certain level of competency in your writing and you feel like you need those final polishes that really take you to the next level, the publishable level, Writing with Quiet Hands is for you. I actually wrote that book a year after I'd been agenting and I was seeing all the writers who were this close to getting published, but they were doing something that kept them. There were obstacles. And so I wrote that book, Writing with Quiet Hands for those people. And then of course, Plot Perfect. My favorite. (laughs) Everybody's favorite, all about how to plot. Mm -hmm. I confess that when I first started writing, I was a terrible plotter. And it was only after years as an acquisitions editor and then as an agent that I felt more comfortable plotting. And that's when I felt comfortable enough to write a mystery, which, of course, very plot driven and complicated plots. Right. And then, of course, I have my mystery series, which is the Mercy Car series. And book four comes out in July. It's called The Wedding Plot. Ooh! Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. I can't find, I can't wait to find out what happens. It was a lot of fun to write because it was, my editor had told me since my books are set in Vermont and there's lots of winter, he said, okay, no more winter. Let's, no more snow. Let's have a summer novel. So I set this book in June, which is peak wedding season in Vermont. Everybody comes to Vermont to get married because it's so beautiful. That's right. Yeah. And there's this very special place called Eshquabog. And it's one of the few places in the world that has these lady slippers orchids. They're these showy orchids and they, they only bloom under very rare conditions. And because of loss of habitat and other things, there are not many left, but there's a wonderful place in Vermont near Woodstock where you can see these showy lady slippers. And so I, I set the, I set the book during the weekend where it's, they bloom and everybody comes to visit them. So it's very wedding, very flowery, lots of family drama, as you know, you know, 
Weddings are always full of family drama and a little murder thrown in for fun. So. Oh, we love that. We love that. I would have killed my ex-husband if it was my book. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but and I want to make a note here, you guys. Um, and Paula did not do anything to to promote her stuff on my show. She's just my friend and I love her stuff and I trust her literary knowledge. Um, I'm a big Audible person. Audible's a sponsor on my shows. And the wedding plot, along with the other Mercy Car mysteries, are available on Audible. And you can pre-order, which I just did, the wedding plot, because I will listen to it the minute it comes out. And so I just wanted to let you guys know it is on Audible. We are a, a talk radio show and we are a podcast, so we do attract audio listeners. So I think it's important to know that all four of her books the mercy car series but your literary and fiction ones aren't right but i have a wonderful narrator kathleen mckinnery who also reads linda castillo and a bunch of other great writers oh. so the audio books are fun to listen to because i have a really great narrator i'm lucky in that regard oh narration is everything i bought a book recently the lady's accent was so obnoxious and I'm a New Yorker. So, and I love the New York accent, but she felt like she was honking like a goose and I couldn't listen to it. So I actually returned it. I've yeah. never returned an audiobook before. I returned that one because I'm like, this is like nails on a chalkboard. I cannot do this. And I really wanted to hear it. Sure. Well, I listen to audiobooks all the time, especially when I'm walking the dogs, you know, and I listened to one recently that I couldn't listen to because of the, the narrator's voice. And then I got a Deborah Crombie novel. I don't know if you read her mysteries, but she's wonderful mysteries. And they're set, she's from Texas, but they're set in England. And there's, you know, all kinds of Scottish, Welsh, English accents. And, it, and the narrator has this wonderful voice and he does all the accents. And it was just made that book even more fun to yeah. listen to. Well, it's true. And, you know, narration is a really big part of it. And, I also think that for many of us, we spend so much time on the screen during the day. For me, all my podcasts are recorded on the screen. And so I'm seeing, I'm looking, and then I'm I'm reading furiously, you know, to catch up for the the shows the next day. And I've lost the ability to just sit down and enjoy a novel without skipping ahead, look at the plot, what are the points, what are the this, what are the that? And I find that I can't slow down enough at the end of a busy workday, or maybe my eyes are too tired, who knows, but an audio book I can listen to, and it brings me back to being a little girl and being told a bedtime story. So oh, I tend to listen to them in the bath at night before I go to bed, and then I'm off to dreamland. Yes, yes. I listen to them at night, too, when I can't sleep. Um, I, it really does help, I think. Plus, it's also you know, it's dark, and it's yeah. like you say, it's, it's like, it reminds me of when I was a little kid, and I would... I would um, you know, listen to the radio under the covers in the dark, you know, when I was supposed to be going to bed. Sure, sure. Well, and that's the thing, you know, I, when we look at writer's block, you know, which is our, our conversation for today, what I found, you know, and I'm a gun for hire during the day. I write for clients all the time. I help PhD candidates rewrite, you know, and, and clean up their theses. I, I write for business clients all the time. And when I want to write personally, which is my goal and my dream, once I get through this current stage of my life, that's how I'd like to spend my next, like, I call Sandra 6.0. <laughs> Sandra yep. at 50 just came into 5.0. I'm going to be at 6.0. So 
So my goal is to work towards that 6.0, you know, being I will no longer be doing parent caregiving, I will no longer be doing child care, like I hope, you know, <laughs> all these things, you know, there's a door opening for me and I'm getting ready to walk through it. But what I found during the pandemic was that I write all day and I perform all day on a podcast as a gun for hire is what I call. I'm paid to do these things. You know, it's not my sole creative work. And so when I do my sole creative work, it's always after the dishes are done, the kids are asleep. And then if I have enough energy, that's my creative time. Well, with the pandemic, kids don't go to sleep because they don't have to get up they can do their classes online whenever they want because the lecture was recorded and my whole mojo just got run over by a steamroller i hardly created anything all i could do was a little bit of journaling at night and this is where i really leaned on my audiobooks i listened to save the cat like three times to learn plotting because i wasn't writing I couldn't find that space, Paul. I couldn't find that clarity because Max is banging pots. My dad's listening to Hogan's Heroes and it's two o'clock in the morning and Zach's gaming and talking to his friends because they finished their homework after an hour. And we're like, I'm done. Put a fork in me. I have no creative space. It's it's very hard. You know, um, I got most of my creative work that, the kind of creative work you're talking about done as you know, I was a working mother. I had a big job and acquisitions and it wasn't until my kids were grown. And, you know, even though my parents are with us and now my mom is still with us, I still have more psychic space in my head than I had when I had children at home. And I also work from home now, um, which gives me more that my time is more my own. And that really helps because I think we have to prime our pumps. And if we're running on empty, it's almost impossible to it's be creative. Impossible. Because I have written under the gun. You know, as a gun for hire, I've been a ghostwriter for a couple different romance genres. I've been a ghostwriter for business books. And yes, if somebody puts a gun to my head like a deadline, um, I can do it. But it's not fun. It's not enjoyable. And I've now associated this is my thing when we talk about writer's block. I've now associated with writing making me sick ah. and that's a thing like i'm really struggling you know because i had my 14 months of cancer treatments and what i think contributed to it is paying all the bills and doing the gun for hire writing during the day then burning the candle was me being creative and all of a sudden i was just an empty vessel yes absolutely one. yes and and we do have to take care of ourselves, right? Oh. And we have to nurture our creative selves. And sometimes that means we rest. Yeah. And that is counterintuitive to our go, 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 digitally infused. I can have um, any movie I want at the push of a button. Right. It, we're not programmed to rest anymore. We used right. to be all the time. I mean, remember when we were kids, summer lasted forever. We didn't do anything. Maybe we watched, right. you know, reruns we played at the in the pool, you know, we rode our bikes, we played outside, you know, summer lasted forever, the days lasted forever. And that kind of freedom, and that kind of psychic space, time for your imagination to roam, we very few of us have built that time into our adult lives. 
No. And if you're a single parent, you know, and a, and a parent caregiver on top of it, there is, and that, I love that you give me the languaging, Paula, because I've been trying to explain to not only my therapist, but my business coach, you know, that, that helps me develop my business, trying to de define what that is that, and you call it psychic space, you know, and we're not conjuring up the dead in the psychic space. We're just <laughs> creating them, manipulating and moving around. But but there's a word for that place and that place is where you go to create and that place can't have and maybe some writers do you know people write in coffee shops all the time mm -hmm. um but that's like a whole bunch of noise like that's white noise that's right. not exactly. you know how do you get into that psychic space when you're a mom working and you've got all these pressures on you how do you how would how did you get in that space or did you wait well, I did. I mean, I had to do, you know, like you, I had to write whether I liked it or not. Right. Um, I was an acquisitions editor, but I would also be, you know, ghostwriting and, and doing a lot of that kind of thing. And I wrote a lot of nonfiction. I started off as a reporter. And so reporters, you have to turn your story in. At right. The end deadline, of the day. deadline. Right. And, and so there are no excuses. Right. So you just find a way to do it. With fiction, I find that more difficult you know yeah. for me nonfiction is you get a good idea you have some great quotes you do your interview you do your research you have all these props as it, it were and it's very procedural you know yeah. you know what to do first you know what to do next it's 10 chapters it's you know whatever you know eighty-five thousand word count like it's all defined out for you as opposed to when you write a story it's not that defined Right. And that's why you kind of have to create those same kind of tools for yourself mm. as a fiction writer that you you use so so easily and naturally as a nonfiction writer. Right. You can use those same tools. You can use plot. You can, you know, brainstorm a plot. You can use um, you can you can use plot. You can use character sketches. You can you can use. Uh, let's see. Plot, character sketches. There are all kinds of tools. A lot of writers use research. Yeah. They use they use color. They use art. They use collages. They make a vision board of their story. I've seen those? Those are so fabulous. Yes, yes. I mean, Alice Hoffman, when she first started writing, she's one of my favorite writers. If you, she wrote Practical Magic oh, and, sure. and all these fabulous, fabulous novels. She used to paint her office the color of the book. She would there would be a color that the book, the theme of the book, and it was if it were purple, she painted her office purple. I so love she would, that, right? And Amy Tan, who writes all those fabulous, you know, um, well, the, the mahjong, the old mahjong ladies, right, right, the Joy Luck Club and all yeah. those. She and she has a lot that takes place in in the, in the Asian culture, and she always has talismans on her desk that relate to the Asian culture and time period she's writing about. And oh, so we, you can use those kinds of tools to help you, right? I love that you call them tools, Paul. I just want to jump in because my kids make fun of me like in public, not in a bad way, but they're like, oh, mom has her radio desk and then she has her coaching desk. And then upstairs she has her writing desk. Uh -huh. and you know, they cannot mix. Like I cannot sit down with all my radio equipment around me and focus on something else. It's like Pavlov's dog. I'm trained sure. into radio or I'm trained into, and they're like, 
I'm going to get a fourth one and my college age son. And he's like, what is this? Like the retirement desk? Like, no, <laughs> but I can't seem to, and maybe it will be better when I'm not pulled in so many directions, but I have to have a space that immerses me in what I'm doing or I'm not effective. Absolutely. And that Pavlov's dog thing, it works for whatever creative pursuit you, you, you desire, because if you create these rituals, around your writing space. Maybe you always make yourself a cup of tea and you sit down at a certain place and you use a certain implement. A lot of times, if I'm stuck, I just write longhand yeah. instead of on the computer. And because that, that it's, it's a faster conduit to my imagination. So you set up all these rituals, you figure out what works for you and you just show up and do those rituals. And if you write, great. If you take a nap, whatever. You've, you're setting up those rituals. You are training yourself like Pavlov's dog to write when you sit down. So do you write in the same place every day? I, I usually do. But what I have now, it's not so much a place as, you know, I always used to have a notebook where I would write longhand. But now I have this iPad Pro that has an Apple Pencil. Yes. And you can write, and it's a smooth, glorious pencil. People use it to draw. I, I can't draw. But I can write, and it changes it as I write into type. Yes. I have a Remarkable that does that. And I'm like, it's remarkable. I feel like such a loser in my bedroom. I'm writing on my Remarkable tablet, and then I push convert to text, and I'm like, ooh, that was magic. It's so awesome. And I can do it. I mean, I usually make a vision board, but now I can do it in an app, you know, with my Apple pencil and I can. Now, do you find it does the same thing though? Because I did a show on, on with a neurologist and talking about like going back to caveman days that, you know, we took a stylus, like a stick and we painted on the cave and that goes back to the neurological hardwiring, but digital has only been around the last 50 years. Our brains haven't come up. So my question to you, my dear is, which is more effective to you, the vision board on the tablet or a physical one that you cut and paste and thought about while you did it? Well, I haven't written a novel yet using my Apple Pencil. I won't, you know, um, I, I didn't have it. I didn't get it until I finished this novel. And then maybe the next novel I'll, I'll try and see. I'm taking notes that way for the next novel. So we'll see if it works as well. I'm very tactile and I do like, I have a box a beautiful box and in it, I throw everything that I may or may not use in the next book. It can be news clippings. It could be maps. It could be oh, posters. I love that idea. Mine's in a folder and it's this thick and it keeps sliding out. Yeah, no, a no, box. Big box. One of those pretty boxes from Marshall's. You know? Yeah. <laughs> big, beautiful box. And I put, or even hat boxes. I have a collection of pretty hat boxes. I put stuff in, you know, and I have a box for the, for the work and projects where I throw things. And I start doing that when I'm working on the novel before, right? Whenever okay. I see something, oh, this is great. This is great, but I can't use it for this novel. So I'll put it in the box. And then I have this, this sort of collection of, of odds and ends that can work their way into the story. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm right there with you. I get that because I do, I do buy things, you know, like, like the other day I bought this little jeweled peacock and I'm like, this is going to be in one of my stories someday. And I don't know what it is. It's antique looking. And I, you know, but then I have all this junk all over my house. And when I walk around and I stop to look at it, I'm like, oh, that's the peacock that's going to go in this story. And that's the, the butterfly. Um, It's this thing right here. It's like a blood, butterfly ring holder. It oh, holds my little treasures, including love this 
this. I'm holding up a little charm for a little dog. Uh -huh. My charm bracelet that I don't have, but I have a dog and a bird. So that's <laughs> it in there. Because um, that seems to me ridiculous expenses when you have, you know, mortgage and kids to pay for. But someday I'll have a charm bracelet. And but I have all these little things, but they're all over and I feel really scattered. And I think if I go to Michael's or Marshall's or whatever and buy some of these boxes, put a label on it, then I can put my writing treasures or my, you know, because one of the things you've helped me so much with Paula is organizing. Because when you're going 100 miles an hour and you have lots of things pulling on you, you always give me, and that's why I go back to writing with quiet hands. And I think it's because it has the word quiet in the title. That just <laughs> calms me down. Like I start to feel everything and your books sit. I have a little chair in my bedroom because, you know, everything's full in my house. And this is like kind of my little writing reading corner. And there's my Paula books. And you know, because I post it on, on Facebook every once in a while when I'm rereading your books for like the third or fourth time. But there's so much in there, Paula. You convey so much knowledge in the the yellow one. What's the yellow one? The, the Writer's Guide to Beginnings? Yes, Writer Guide to Beginnings. Then you have the black one. And then you have like kind of the soft blue one. And depending right. on where I'm feeling that day, my emotion, I pick up one of the three and read a chapter because I'm trying to stuff your knowledge into my head because <laughs> I know when it comes down to when I'm ready to make my switch or to transition my household from being parents and kids to my creative space, I know I'm not going to want to sit down and start as a new person. And that's the thing about with writer's block, my way of dealing not so much with writer's block, I'm going to call it writer's focus. I'm not able to focus enough right now with the time and the energy for my own work. I'm going to try to carve that out this summer. But my writer's block can be nourished by reading well-written, well-instructional books to help my writing improve when I do have time. So I'm kind of working on my writing, but I'm not. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I over the years, I've had at least a thousand books on writing. I've read at least a thousand books on writing. I'm, I still read. I, I read all the interviews with writers from Paris Review. And I watch the, you know, all the book signings on Zoom now where you can watch your favorite writer be interviewed when their new book comes out. I just listened to CJ Box uh, at the Poison Pen. You know, all those things are good and they all prime that pump because it doesn't matter if, if, if you're so busy and then you finally carve out the time. And I've had I've known writers who've done this. They finally carve out the time. They get to a retreat, but their pump is so dry that all they do is sleep for a week. They don't get any writing done. So you have to make sure that you're priming the pump all along. And by doing things like you're talking about, reading writing books, listening to, to writers on, on TV or on your favorite podcast, you know, um, any kind of creative writing-related activity helps you prime the pump so that when you do sit down, there's some there's some juice there. Right. And there's some, you know, one of the things that I learned and, you know, both you and Gina Panateri of, of Talcott Notch were so loving and so beautiful for me. You know, when I, I sat down and I wrote, rewrote like a whole novel in like a month, it was like a NaNoWriMo, but in June and like with a lunatic, like monkey on my back. And I look back at that writing and, you know, yeah, there was good things about it. I clearly can write, but I didn't understand plot. I didn't understand character development because writing for somebody else is different than writing for yourself. 
And I just want to have your thoughts on that because I hadn't written for myself since my 20s. I was in my 40s when I wrote that manuscript that I sent over to Gina. And she was so lovely and so patient with my like just blathering on for 250 pages. And she was so exquisite in her and gentle in her criticism. And she gave me beautiful ways to improve it. And the most important thing I came away from is I have some homework to do. Right. And also when you're writing to please other people, whether it's your ghost writing, you're writing law briefs, if you're a lawyer, you're writing ad copy, if you're a copy, whatever it is you're writing by day, where, where what you're writing is not determined by what you're doing, but by whatever goals of the project there are, right? Whether it's for a court case or whether it's for a client, whatever it is, it's not you writing your right. story. It's not your truth. It's their truth. Right. And I think it's very hard. I mean, I started off as a reporter and reporters tell other people's stories. Right. You keep yourself out of the story. Right. And writing fiction is putting yourself into the story. Into the story. Literally inhabiting every character as if you were a method actor. Gotcha. And that's a different way of doing it. And sometimes we finally have the, and I remember when I sat down, I finally had the time to, to write my own stuff. I had no idea what to write. I didn't, you know, I had never thought about what I really wanted to say. Or, and, or if I did, it was, is, is, was in such generic terms that I hadn't really spent any time thinking about what is it that I really want to say? What right. story do I really want to tell? How do I tell my truth? And what is that truth? Right. Right. Because you're like, you know, that's why I use the term gun for hire, because a gun for hire is like, okay, go kill this target. Like go, go take this person out or go or shoot this and hit the bullseye. Like I was given this target. And, you know, when I sat down and I'm like, I have a story to tell. And then what's funny is now, like two years later, I went back and revisited that story during COVID. And I'm like, that's not my truth anymore. And I've outgrown that story. And, you know, the story at the time had to do with my, you know, Buffalo to Beverly Hills, fish out of water, the whole thing, funny, ha, ha, ha. But then I looked at who I am today and I'm like, that's not the story I want to tell. Right, right. And, and that's why I think a lot of writers, when they finally get the time, you know, they sort of choke because they haven't, they haven't thought about in any deep, meaningful way what story they really want to tell. Right. And, and really, you know, the hardest thing about being a, a writer is that you're competing against all these other established writers and you have to figure out what you can write that's different, right? That will resonate with readers, but is also different enough to differentiate your story from other people's, all the bestsellers out there. And, and that means you really have to figure out what you want to say and how you want to say it, you know, and, and what makes you different. Well, what makes your work different is you. Right. And you can't be afraid to put it out there. Because what readers want most is to finish a book and not only feel like they've had this wonderful, satisfying reading experience, but they also want to feel like they know the writer a little better. Yes. You know, and you have to be willing to reveal yourself in ways that you would never think you really are, even if you're telling a story about Mars, you know, or right. or about, you know, Middle Earth. It's still you come out. And so you have to be prepared for that. And you have to embrace that because what you bring to the table is what makes your story different. 
Right. And your voice and your word choice and what, how you see the world. I think that was one of the big ahas. You know, I've been, I've been hired for so long that I lost, I never really thought about my, what I believed or what I thought or what I, you know, and, and, you know, it creeps in a little bit when you're a ghostwriter, you know, your own stuff creeps in, but it's not like when you're writing your own piece. And lately I've taken this journal and it's called like, you know, like my future stories journal. And I just write stories down in there. I just write ideas and, you know, it's, it's nothing, anything. And this latest idea that I had came through so strongly. And all I wrote was the end of the book. And it was really weird. It was the end of the book. Like my character stands up and she's like, no, I get to choose my thoughts. I get to, you know, and I wrote this whole scene and I'm like, oh my God, I'm bawling, whatever. And I write the end of a book. Like what? But that's great because, you know, that's what John Irving does. Oh. He writes the last scene first and then he always knows where he's going. Gotcha. Huh. So, so that's actually, I'm thinking like, this is all buckets of crazy going, okay, I can't no. write the book, but I can write the ending. <laughs> it's brilliant. Because now, you know, you know, I think it was E.L. Doctorow who said that writing a novel is like driving a car at night. You can only see, you can only see as far as the lights will shine down the road, right. but you can get there if you just keep going. Oh, um, yeah. You know, and I think that's true for a lot of us, but you, you know, you're where you're going. You have right. that in seed. And that, right. yeah, not, John Irving never starts a novel till he's written the last scene. Oh, see, you're so good. You're like the writing therapist. Like, right. you know, <laughs> I give you my problem saying, oh, you know, Paula can't focus. Paula got this. Paula wrote the ending first. What's wrong with me? And you're like, oh, no, it's good. John Irving. And, you know, you're just so good at that. And I do, you know, I appreciate our friendship, but I also appreciate your vast knowledge of the literary community well it's a lovely community and i'm i'm pleased and happy to be a part of it always well you know and it's funny as i've gone through my careers over the years you know i started out heavily entrenched in the writing community and i loved it but i was tired of being poor and so <laughs> you know if you want to have a house you want to have kids it's probably not good to do stringer work for a newspaper and I wasn't one of those people willing to sacrifice for the greater good or for the later grab. So of course, what do I do? I quit all that and I go work for the studios. I work for, you know, these real estate companies that deal with the studios, made a ton of money, lost a bunch of money, made money back, lost a bunch of money. Now I'm back on the upturn. And, you know, I thought to myself, like in each community, I've met friendships because each community has like a kind of a reigning thing like when i was working in in the studio it was like we were all bonded together by our love of media love of movies love of this then i go into real estate and i'm like oh my gosh it's the love of homes and you know i love homes i still i still go to open houses even though i'm not buying one just to look at people's houses because i love that i think every house tells a story and then I go back into, you know, tech and I'm, I'm heavily in tech and I'm like, wow, look at all these things you can do. It's so creative. Now I'm circling back at the end of kind of like this, you know, Sandra 5.0 into Sandra 6.0. And I'm like, the one thing about the writing community, there is so much soul connection. And I haven't found that in the studios. I haven't found that in real estate. I haven't found that in technology that writers connect on this weird soul level 
And one writer can meet another writer. And I've spoken at enough conferences now, you know, on how to interview, how to websites, all the kind of that technical side of it for book marketing. But you make these like weird soul connections. You and I have one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And every writer needs writer friends. You know, no one, no one who's not a writer is going to understand why you sit alone by yourself in a room making up stories <laughs> about imaginary people. Right. When you could no. be outliving them. <laughs> yeah, they just don't understand that. And you can't expect them to. You know, you know, right. it's a very, you know, specific desire. So writer friends really, really make you feel at home yes. in the world of books. And I think that's really important. Well, and, you know, as I've connected back into this side of myself, you know, I was this little girl who wrote stories incessantly and a story that I wrote got me a full scholarship to Northwestern. And I had, I know, and I had the choice to, and I still remember this, my mom sitting in her, her bed and I was sitting at the foot of her bed talking about, I got accepted into two programs at Northwestern and one was more practical, you know, journalistic, you know, business writing kind of thing. And the other one was creative writing. And they only take six people in this program. I got into both, but I chose the non-creative one because my mom said, you can write till the day you die. But she's like, you only have a certain amount of time to make a living. Now, my mom was raised by a single mom. So she's like, you need to be prepared someday. You might be a single mom. I was the only one in the family that became a single mom. So I'm eternally grateful. But there's sometimes when I walk back in my mind and go, well, what if I had taken that creative path? Would I be making the same amount of money just as an author today? Like, I, I don't know. We don't know those things. Right. But as I circle back at the end of like my, I call it my tour duty parenting, a military family, my tour duty parenting, and I'm not, you know, having to move so much, meaning move to the soccer field, move to the, you know, all that. I've reconnected with these authors like you and agents that I just love. And it feels like a homecoming. And if you are a writer or an, an agent or anybody in the literary community with a dog, I'm like, oh, I love you because my dogs are everything. Yes. Well, you know, my dogs are everything too. Yeah. We also have a cat. So we, you know, we're just, we're cat and dog people. And, and a lot of writers are cat and dog people. Yes. Animal <laughs> yeah. people. Cause you know what? Animals are easier to deal with, I think. And that's I think, why we write, you know, so much of writing is about human behavior, human nature, why people do the things they do. You know, you're a really good study of kind of sociology and psychology to make a well-written story. Absolutely. And, and also, I like to write because it helps me clarify my own thinking, my own feeling, my own beliefs, not just Ooh. other people's, gotcha. but my own. Because writing, I always used to say that Writing is thinking on paper. That's why a lot of people don't like to do it because you have to think to write. Right. I mean, there's no way to get around that. And then to write fiction, it's dreaming on paper. Yes. So you have to allow right. yourself to dream, right? And, and a lot of times we don't allow ourselves to do that because we're trying to be practical and get things done. And, you know, or dream. we know like there's other things to do. Like, you know, that's one of the things, you know, when you talked about the dreaming on paper, like that's what my radio is. It's not dreaming, you know, while you're talking, but the time of talk radio I do requires you to pay attention. You have to read the, the books. You have to know the topics. Like you can't just come in here cold. My topics can anywhere, anything from business to health, to writing, to 
inspiration to spirituality can run that gamut. So there's a lot of work to be done to before you pick up a microphone, just like with picking up a pen, but dreaming on paper to me, that's my vacation. That's <laughs> my relaxation. Like I just, there's nothing better than going into an author's world and completely forgetting the mortgage due, the dentist you got to go to, you take your kid tomorrow, and then your older one, you know, had a fender bender, and now the person's suing you, true story. You know, this happened to me all, you know, last year amidst everything else, and the only escape. Yes, some people can do movies and do television. That doesn't work for me because I stare at a screen all day, but what works for me is borrowing of bones, one of Paula's books, like, <laughs> You can take me into Mercy Carr's world, and I know that there's going to be trauma. Obviously, it's a murder mystery, so somebody's going to die. And I know I'm going to feel a lot of things, but what I know at the end of the day is I am safe while I'm in your book. I'm safe to experience. I'm safe to do all these things. And in a world that's uncertain and challenged with a lot of safety, there is a lot of solace to be found in a good book. Absolutely. I think that's why many people rediscovered their love of reading during the pandemic sure because of that very thing you know books have always been my escape and they've always been my friends i was yep. sort of a lonely only child and so i had my dog and i had my books and those were my friends well and i was a lost in the middle i was a lot i wasn't oldest wasn't youngest i was a lost in the middle and i used to take books out in fact i took a picture of the tree it's old and it's got an owl living in it now and it's kind of half broken and dead and it was this huge tree that i used to sit in i take my books up there and read and you know what book I bought yesterday, Paula, out of the blue, it came to me, I was doing a, a round table for Julia Cameron's, um, the artist way I'm teaching the artist way, you know, every Monday, volunteer teaching to anybody who wants to join for for, you know, women that need this. And it's part of That's my awesome. give back. Yeah, it's my give back to the community. And we have a wonderful group of on and off 20 ladies from around the world, they come in. And her cat kept walking over and then her cat was playing literally with the mouse. Then another cat came in and she's like, oh, well, this is this cat and this has this cat personality. And I was brought back to Jenny in the cat club. Oh. Esther Averill's book from when I was a little girl and I loved the cat that went down the fire pole on the cover. I hadn't thought about that book in 35 years, maybe 40 years. And it's available still on Amazon. I bought it. It's going to be delivered today. It's like going to go in my precious book collection because I loved Jenny and the Cat Club, you know, just a, like I love the Wednesday Witch and what the witch left, you know, these really old children's books. And recently, this is interesting. Like, at least I found it interesting. I have my original Stuart Little that I love. Oh, wow. Yes. I saved all my books. My parents boxed up my books. That was the only thing I cared about. Clothes, sports stuff, who cares? My books were my precious things. And I, I brought my old Beezus and Ramona book back, dog-teared, from my mom's house this week um, when I was back in New York. But those books are precious to me, more precious than any nice jewelry that I have. And they're my friends. And I gave my book to my 15-year-old, Stuart Little, to read. And he's like, what English is this written in? <laughs> and I'm like, wow, do I feel old? Like, you know, <laughs> this is not Shakespearean English. This is like 1970s, 1980s English. But he asked me like what 
six or seven words were in the first paragraph. And I thought, you're 15, you're taking college classes, you're the best and the brightest of your high school, and you can't read the opening passage of Stuart Little without vocabulary. And I was just, and it's no disrespect to the California school system, you know, <laughs> but how how do you communicate when you have no language and in your own language? And Stuart Little is not ye old English Chaucer, you know? Right. <laughs> Stuart Little, he's a mouse in a boat. Like, come on. Yeah, that, that, yeah that's kind of shocking. It was. I mean, I do think that, you know, literacy is, is a problem. And, and I think kids don't read as much as they should. And they don't necessarily read what they should. You know, they're banning books everywhere. And, you know, it's just not good. I mean, I was when I was a kid, I just read everything I could get my hands on. Me too. I read all my parents' books. I read all the books in the library. I read all the books, you know, and, and pe then people gave you books. Like my teachers would give right. me books far beyond my <laughs> comprehension. You know, uh, it's a wonderful book, uh, The Naked Ape by Desmond Morris. He was, a, um, it was a, you know, he's an anthropologist. Yeah. It, was a, it looked at the human as the naked ape, as right, if he, an animal. Right, the way, a, an, you know, a biologist, an, an animal uh, scientist or an anthropologist would. And was very successful in its time. And um, I was maybe 12 or 13 and my religion teacher gave it to me. My catechism teacher gave me this Interesting. book. Yes. And every chapter was about, you know, looking at the human as if he were just another animal species. And the third chapter was on sex. And it was very tame. But, I, you know, it was the hit of the of the slumber party circuit. Let me tell you. I bet. We're going to read chapter three, you know. And, and it was, again, all science language and completely, completely academic. Nothing even mildly titillating about it. But when my mother said, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> I mentioned a couple of things. She said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, it's in Desmond Morris's The Naked Ape. And she goes, where? And she, she looked at this book she's reading. She goes, oh no. She says, where did you get this book? And I said, my catechism teacher gave it to me because <laughs> I loved anthropology. Sure. <laughs> you know, um, I, I can't imagine that happening today. I no. hope it would happen today, you know, that, that a catechism teacher would give a kid a book on anthropology, but uh, a science book, but you know, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing is I've got, you know, my house is full filled with books. You know, I've got bookcases and I've always let the kids just pull out whatever book they want, you know, without now, of course, I don't have pornography and I don't have, right. you know, things like that. But I have, you know, I have the Quran. I have the Talmud. I have, you know, the Kabbalah. I have all these things, you know, for them to pick up and 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 enjoy and read. Because I don't know where it came, and this is, you know, obviously a political diatribe. Where did it come that because we read a book that we're forever somehow hypnotically changed <laughs> into some wacko belief system? Like I can read a book, Paula, and I can go, huh, I don't agree with that author in a split second and move on to the next paragraph. Like these are books. They're not brainwashing, right. lay on your back, drip water on your head. You know, they the fear of certain books or the fear of things that are said, what happened to in one ear and out the other? Like what happened to trusting our own minds? 
Right. Well, yes. And what happened to critical thinking? You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, critical thinking, you know, my mother always just say, whatever, don't believe everything you read. And, and yes, you can't believe everything you read. And that should be, everybody should know that. That should be, right. you know, everybody should know that you can't believe everything you read. And that, that that's part of learning to be a critical thinker is to think about what critically about what you're reading. Does this make sense? Does this not make sense? You get to accept it or reject it or embrace it. It's up to you. You know, that's the glory of reading is that you have all this knowledge at your fingertips and you get to decide what to take in. Right. What applies to you. Right. Right. You know, and if you've ever, you know, you, you don't believe us, like take a book that you read as a child. I love to do this. Like I'm reading Little Women. That's I went and bought the Little Women series, you know, from Barnes and Nobles. And I got the nice leather bound one because I can finally afford it. And, you know, I'm reading through it going, wow. I see it from a whole different perspective because I'm a different person than when I read it at 10 years old. Sure. Oh, absolutely. I can remember, you know, um, a lot of books I read as a young woman, the so-called classics and that I just thought, you know, what the I was just not interested. And and um, one of the most important ones was Catcher in the Rock. And I, I just thought it was the dumbest book ever when I was a teenager reading and I you know in college, whenever I read it, I was a young woman, I read it and I just thought it was dumb. <laughs> and then I raised two boys. Right. And what I had two teenage boys and one of the boys had to read Catcher in the Rye for school. And, you know, I can't help myself. I'm an editor and a writer. So my kids like it or not, they got the benefit of my experience (laughs) as a writer and an editor. And so I helped, you know, I edited all their reports. And so I I reread the book because I hadn't read it, you know, years, decades. And I thought, oh my God, this is like being trapped in the brain of one of my teenage boys. And then I understood this is a book of genius. I understood why people thought it was so much of the story. I just thought it was lame, but now I understood he really communicates what it's like. Right. Me, a, a teen, a young man, you know, and so now I have nothing but respect for Catcher in the Rye. But at the time when I read it as a young woman, I just thought it was as lame as the teenage. Me boys. too. I'm like, what a dumb book. Like, it doesn't make sense to me because I'm a teenage girl. I read it in, in eighth or ninth grade. And I remember there was a big stink about it had bad words in it. So like, you know, you had to get a permission slip, you know, to to read a book that has bad words in it. And, you know, and I just I agree with you. I thought it was the dumbest thing. I'll go back and read it now because it's on my kids shelves. You know, same with a patch of blue. That was another one that I'm like, wow, this really is a stinker. And then I get older. I'm like, oh, wow, that was so good. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fun to read the the so-called classics that you hated as a young person and then read them again as a grown up and see how how very differently you view the books. It's really it's really interesting. Yeah, because we change and the book stays the same, but our relationship to it. And, you know, when I I'm going to read Beezus and Ramona, you know, because I brought I that book home. I love Beverly Cleary. You know, and I have I, I was going to buy them in the new store, but I didn't like the new slick gloss covers. I wanted the old ones where, like, you know, my brother chewed part of the corner off because he was a baby, like things like that. Like I have all my old books that the kids are like, Mom, these are so gross. And I'm like, you know what? But they're they're my friends and they were my good friends at that age. So I want to thank you, Paula, for being my good friend today. You can find her at Paula Mounier and Mounier is spelled M-U-N-I-E-R, Paula Mounier. 
Check out her works of literary fiction. Check out her nonfiction books. Just look her up on Amazon and buy her books, not because she's my friend, but maybe a little bit, but, but because they're really good. They're well-written. They're articulate. They're smart. They're poignant. They're thought-provoking. They're all the things good books should be. And I'm so proud to call her my friend. Oh, well, I am proud to call you my friend as well. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. All right, you guys, Mutual Love Fest. We'll be back again next week. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Military Mom Talk Radio. Want more information? Check us out at militarymomtalkradio.com or find us on iTunes for more than 500 free episodes. Drop us an email or find us on Facebook. We are looking forward to another great discussion. We hope you'll join us on Military Mom Talk Radio. Oh,